This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Patty Cooter is a state senator representing Washington's 48th LD, and she recently declared her candidacy for state insurance commissioner in next year's election. And we are so happy to have her with us on the show. Senator, welcome. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well. I'm very busy. <laughs> I, you are very busy. You're wearing a lot of hats. You're, you've been traveling the world, and uh, we're just very uh, grateful to have you here today. You know, by all measures, and in, in speaking of which, you've been a very effective senator since you assumed office in 2017. So what motivated you now to run for insurance commissioner? Well, I can tell you that it's been on my radar for about five years. About five years ago, we started really focusing on how do we expand health care, uh, universal health care. We passed a bill to um, create the Universal Health Care Commission, and I was part of that. And, you know, it, it really um, got me thinking about how do we create the structure for that? It's a passion of mine. And uh, so I went and I was chatting with staff about it. I was doing more than chatting. I was actually, you know, probably driving them crazy about how do we do this. And they finally said to me, you know, Senator Kuder, this really needs to come from the insurance commissioner's office because the insurance commissioner will be charged with implementing whatever legislation is ultimately passed. So it's really important to have that particular commission on board with whatever structure is developed. And that's when I started looking at that job and that role and had a vision uh, for what it could do and reached out to um, Commissioner Kreidler and told him about my interest in that position and my interest in universal health care, something that he did share with me. It's also my understanding, in addition to your legislative uh, imperative here, that you also had a terrible experience with your insurance during your daughter's premature birth as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that was that's really the, the motivation behind my um, desire to have universal health care. Uh, 30 years ago, um, when she was born, she was three months early, so very tiny. Um, I had never seen a human being that small, one pound, 13 ounces. Mm. And she was hooked up to all this equipment in, in an incubator that looked like it weighed more than she did. And, um, and I was lucky. I was in a, in a firm that was very pro family and they took my cases and they said, go be by your daughter's side. And that meant a lot to me because I, it was clear what the doctors were saying that she was critically ill and could die at any moment. Um, my biggest fear wasn't just that it was that she would die and I wouldn't be there. And so when there was treatment being recommended for her care by her doctors who were magnificent, as were the NICU nurses, there were a couple times when the insurance company denied the, the, the coverage for the, for the treatment. They said it was experimental. And as a lawyer, I mean, I had already, you know, dusted it up with insurance companies in the past. And I knew which buttons to push. And, and believe me, when you're when when you're also a parent in that position, you're pushing them pretty hard. And I I got the coverage, um, but I knew that they were probably doing the same thing to to other families who were in the NICU with me. And when I got home, she came home at five months, and she was still medically fragile and was for about a decade. Um, there was a letter from the insurance company saying that she had nearly reached her lifetime cap, and it was at that moment when I had this realization that we have a morally bankrupt healthcare industry. It, it is a for-profit industry, which by definition means that they're going to be denying care to people who need it. 
in order to have the profit. And that's really what put me on the quest for universal health care. Well, I mean, and your personal experience here was just harrowing. And certainly as commissioner, you would want to use your expertise to make sure that no one else would have to go through uh, what you went through with the insurance companies. As a quick overview then, what does a state insurance commissioner do in overseeing? Well, the state insurance commissioner, you know, um, will respond to complaints that are filed with the OIC. At least that's part of the role. I mean, the role is twofold to regulate the insurance industry and also to be a consumer advocate. That's written right into um, the legislation. And that consumer advocacy is where I see um, that falling under. And what it means is that you would investigate. The, the insurance commissioner has the ability to investigate and, deter- and determine whether or not uh, any claim denial was fair. And, you know, was it done according to the policy that, that has to be filed with the insurance commissioner's office, you know, or, or not? And I think, you know, um, in situations like this, you have to understand a lot of people don't even know that the insurance commissioner's office exists. Um, they have bigger issues on their plate. And I think that's part of the problem is that we need to make sure that the public knows that this resource is available to them. Uh, and that's something that I want to take sort of on the road. Uh, when I'm in the role, I want to go out around the state and talk to people about what the insurance commissioner does, what the office does, and how we can help them in, in sometimes when it's a crisis, but in, in instances where they have a, a valid dispute with their insurance company. Well, so, you know, in, uh, on that topic, as a consumer advocate, then, when, you're inve- when uh, you investigate and determine if a claim is fair, what, brought, what mandate do you have to rectify that on behalf of insurance consumers? Well, you get to audit. Well, you get to approve the rate increases and things like that. And I think, you know, you get to you have input into whether or not the claim is legitimate or not. And I think that's part partially an issue of training, too. I think the staff that handles the complaints, the initial intake of the complaints, and there's an investigative unit. And there's also a legal unit within the insurance commissioner's office and legal action can be taken. So, you know, this the the insurance commissioner in Washington state really does have a lot of of um, power, if you will, uh, to really level the the power dynamic between an insurance company and an insured. And I think that um, from my standpoint, from my background uh, as a trial attorney, having represented um, companies in the past, including I was uh, asked by a couple insurance companies to handle cases on their behalf, in addition to representing insureds whose claims had been denied. I think I have a unique sense of, of um, you know, I guess fairness, if you will, in terms of the claims handling process and what, uh, what the role of the insurance commissioner should look like going forward. And I think that the, the next insurance commissioner will have a fair amount of leeway to shape that. Uh, I, and that's, you know, like I said, it's in my blood um, and I intend to take that, that piece very seriously. You know, speaking of fairness, um, you said that you would like to expand the Insurance Fair Conduct Act, because, of course, as commissioner, uh, you're responsible for making sure that existing laws are also enforced. So what does the Insurance Fair Conduct Act cover and how would you like to expand it? Well, it covers first party claims. So between you and your insurance company, if you have a dispute about a claim that you file and they've denied it, it covers that. 
And it essentially allows private attorneys to take your case. And um, if, if certain requirements haven't been met that are laid out in the Insurance Fair Conduct Act, then the, the insured would win and there's an award of attorney's fees. So that's really kind of the, the calculus that insurance companies will make um, whenever the notice is sent that uh, someone is going to pursue an IFCA complaint. Interestingly, um, when the law was passed, and it's the strongest in the nation, and it's one that our citizens should be proud of and know that it is probably one of the strongest consumer protection laws out there. Um, and we should protect it for sure. But interestingly, healthcare companies somehow were taken out of that um, jurisdiction. So if you have, like when I had the, the challenge with my um, healthcare provider for my daughter, I would not have been able to access IFCA. And I think that that's what, what I think that's a change that we should be making because I think when you're talking about healthcare in particular, um, you're talking about the need to have um, the treatment immediately in some cases, like with my daughter. And I, and I, it's not something that traditionally can wait, um, you know, as in the case of a car that's already been damaged or something like that. Uh, so I think, I think that is one area that I'd like to look very closely at in terms of expanding IFCA for that. Just so folks know, as I introduced it, it's uh, IFCA is the Insurance Fair Conduct Act. So, you know, as commissioner, you, of course, would also work with lawmakers on specific legislation. This, uh, I think, very much obviously in your wheelhouse because you are part of that body. I know that you would like to see a regional single payer health care system in partnership with California, Oregon, Alaska and Hawaii. Um, I also know that you backed a commission to study this. They just released a report. This is called the Interstate Healthcare Compact. So give us a sense of this. What would this look like? How would it work for consumers? Well, um, how it would work is that, you know, um, there would be an agreement between the states that they would create this entity, a single payer system, a federated board that would be a single payer that would negotiate with um, healthcare um, insurers on, on uh, claims and coverages and, and payments. Uh, and, um, and, and in other words, you would leverage um, all of those people, because the networks, the healthcare networks divide up the country for the most part, much like the banks do. Yeah, it's all and, regional, right? Yeah, so it'd be a regional, yeah, you'd have way more bargaining power with a regional interstate healthcare compact. But the goal here is to provide healthcare for everybody. And this is one idea. It, it, it is my idea. Um, but I'm open to other ideas that might exist out there in terms of getting us to the same place. When you were talking about, um, when I, when I talked about my daughter in the letter we got about her lifetime cap, some of this has been, um, addressed already with Obamacare. So thankfully the lifetime cap is no longer there. The pre-existing condition, um, exclusion with the exception of long-term disability insurance, um, is no longer included. You know, those, those are a thing of the past, but it didn't include a public option. Uh, Washington a few years ago under the leadership of, of my uh, former colleague, Senator Frocht, uh, we created Cascade Care. And that was, I think, really groundbreaking in terms of that's a public option. Um, but it's limited in its, in its use to counties where there is no coverage, no insurance. Uh, insurer in there and or where there's just one. And I think that, you know, we need to be looking at this differently because even with all the um, 
programs that we have out there. We still have millions of uninsured people across the country, and we have thousands in our state. And we also have thousands who are underinsured. And that's also another problem. So I think that when, you know, the next insurance commissioner should be looking very seriously at how do we form this structure to make sure that Washingtonians have access to quality health care, um, basic quality health care uh, that we all know is foundational for their lives. Yeah, I mean, this is this is absolutely something that you know we've been covering uh, since this show has been in existence and have, have followed the progress uh, through the state. And these are the sorts of things that take um, a long time. And I, I would just ask you, I know that people tend to get a little frustrated, honestly, with the progress of universal health care uh, and, and what uh, I, I think, you know, we've we've heard about uh, proposed by our, our, our state legislature for quite some time from your perch as insurance commissioner. Are there things that you can do to uh, perhaps, uh, for want of a better term, expedite things? How are you thinking about this? Well, yes. um, And I don't blame people for being frustrated. I mean, like I said, this has been something I've been focused on for 30 years. Um, And at the time, I happened to run into a doctor uh, at Children's Hospital who hired me. And he was an author writing on our failed healthcare system. So we know what the flaws are. They've been around forever. It's not like our healthcare system was designed. It happened organically, right? And tying it to employment is ludicrous. And so what I would do as insurance commissioner is I'd make sure that there was a team within the commission um, that was focused on this and working with the legislature on creating the appropriate structure that could work for ensuring, um, making sure Washingtonians have access to quality health care. So it, it would be a priority. That's what I'm saying. And when, when people in positions like that um, make something a priority, things tend to happen more quickly. And I use that term, you know, relative to sure. the regular legislative process, which is designed to kill bills, um, you know, but but it, it tends to happen more quickly than not. And the other thing is, it's not just that it's a priority for me, it's a priority for the majority of citizens of our state. This yep. is a priority, and they want us working on this. You know, we hear about, you know, people are upset about taxes. I don't blame them um, because I don't think they feel they see a value for what they're paying, even though there are there are things that, that we get public education, public roads, um, law enforcement, et cetera. I could go on. But you know what I'm saying? It, it doesn't feel mm. real apparent, but healthcare. When you think about the fact that in our country, the number one cause of bankruptcy are medical bills, having universal health care would, would absolutely, people would say, yes, I'm happy to pay taxes for that. And you know they would because that's what I hear from people when I talk to them about this. They also don't want it tied to employment. And that's the other thing that I think has to be part of whatever the structure is that we come up with. It cannot be tied to employment. And I'll tell you what, Business owners, especially small business owners, like that because it's a big chunk of their overhead. Yeah, we certainly saw that uh, as a, a bit of a revelation, I think, during the pandemic. Uh, it was a moment where we really took a look at the way in which uh, healthcare was structured in this country, and particularly, as, as you say, in the way it was tied uh, to insurance and uh, tied to employment, rather, and, and really started to put that under the microscope. You know, you've also talked about regulating the gun industry through insurance. I think people may be familiar with Gavin Newsom's work on this in California. How would you see this working in Washington? 
Well, we talk a lot about, um, you know, gun violence in our country and for obvious reasons. I mean, we stand out when it comes to that. But there, there are different kinds of gun violence. I mean, uh, and one of the things that, that I have focused on too has been, um, uh, suicide by gun. And we had, we have passed legislation to help reduce that. And it looks like that has been effective to some extent. But the bottom line is if someone is negligently leaving a gun out and, and a tragedy occurs because of that, there should be some way for a victim of gun violence to, um, to get compensation. We don't, unless you're suing the person directly. And a lot of times there's not a lot of assets and the injuries can be horrific, if not death. Um, you know, it can be, um, it can mean that, that a victim does not have any compensation at all for what happened. And I think with, with rights come responsibilities. Uh, and it seems to me that if you're going to own, um, a weapon and everyone has the right to do that under our constitution, uh, both our state and our federal constitution. I just think that it makes sense that you have insurance, uh, you know, in the, in case there is negligence involved in, in your handling of your weapon. And I think we've got, gotten to a point where, um, the NRA has decided that that is one of their number one things to fight. And so I'm not expecting this to be easy at all. And there's there's just a few examples like New Jersey passed a law. I I, I don't necessarily think that is the model. Um, and uh, San Jose, the city of San Jose has its own ordinance on gun liability owner insurance. And, you know, it would open up a market, of course. Um, but I also think it would incentivize people to safely store their weapons, you know, take training, um, you know, register the gun. Maybe invest in, in the smart technology where your gun cannot be operated unless it's you operating it. And I think that could lower your premiums right there, right? Cause anytime you're an insurance company is setting premiums, they have to go through an actuarial process and look at, you know, what's causing what, how do they assess the risk? Yeah. And if you just leave your gun sitting on your, your car seat and your car door unlocked, uh, obviously, that's a different level of risk than if it's safely stored in a gun case uh, and the ammunition is stored separately, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, with rights come responsibilities. So outgoing Commissioner Mike Kreidler is going to be stepping down uh, from this position after allegations of mistreating staff, making racist comments. I'd say ask you, how do you feel that that has impacted public trust of this position? And then, you know, how would you work to rebuild that trust? Well, um, I think anytime you have a public official um, mistreating employees, it's going to have an impact on trust, whether that's the public at large or within the agency itself. Uh, and, you know, my background as a, a lawyer, the main, I have a very broad legal background, but one of the constants or the constant in all of my career um, has been employment law. And I have represented, like I said, companies uh, and employees, and I have seen all different kinds of management styles. And I think I have a pretty good handle on what works and what doesn't work. But I can tell you that there's a difference between someone who says that um, my employees work for me and someone who says, I have a team that works with me. 
And I'm the latter. I've always been that way, very collaborative. I value people, what they bring to the table. And I think that's part of building a strong uh, commission. And I wanna make this commission consumer centric because I do think that that is um, a big part of the mandate. And I also think just the, the regulation of the, uh, the insurance industry piece, that actually, you know, the goal of that is consumer advocacy is is to to represent the citizens of the state. So that's what I hope to bring to um, the office of the insurance commissioner. Um, and I also know that you have to treat people with respect. That's just the bottom line. You have to know the difference between a performance issue and a behavioral issue. And I've written um, you know, employment manuals in the past for other entities and like I said, I have a pretty good handle on what works and what doesn't work. Um, but the bottom line is um, you need to treat people with respect and you need to be fair. So we are just over a year out from next year's election. Uh, people are uh, most likely liking what they're hearing from you. So how can they get involved with your campaign? Uh, thank you. Well, they can reach out to me um, at info at .com. My website is uh, .com. Um I would love to to you know, come and speak at any organizations that your listeners may belong to. Um, I know that this, like I said, this is kind of a race that tends to fly under the radar a bit because it's not the governor, it's not the attorney general, it's not secretary of state, treasurer, et cetera, sort of the big four. Um, but it's a very important race and it's an important position. So anytime I can get out in front of people and talk to them about my vision, uh, for the insurance commissioner's office and uh, my motivation for wanting to be the next insurance commissioner is really, really helpful. And of course, I never turn down donations. <laughs> no donation is too small or too large. Well, I guess you could have a too large one technically. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, you, you could, uh, but I, I think that would be a nice problem for you to have. So, uh, <laughs> Senator Petty Cooter, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video version of this podcast, head to facebook.com slash indivisible podcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.